Father, we uh, just want to continue to sing of how good, great, glorious, magnificent, awesome, wondrous you are. Lord, that in every aspect of our lives, even when we feel like you're the furthest away, we know that you are good, that you are close, that you love us, that you have compassion upon us, that you extend grace to us. Lord, I pray this morning for everybody here, if they haven't experienced the goodness of God, Lord, that they would, their hearts and their minds would be opened to your goodness, to your grace, to your mercy. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're getting relatively close to the end of our series on the attributes of God. Just to let you know, we will finish up on the 19th. So we've only got a few more Sundays left, and this has been an incredible journey for us. I pray that you have been challenged and stretched. I know that I have. Uh, I know that it has been a good time for us to decide, to sit down and actually study these several attributes. It'll be 16 weeks, I believe, that we've been going through this. But before we get into the this morning's attribute, um, I don't know if you could tell by, by some of the music selections, but this morning we're going to be focused on the goodness of God. Um, but before we start off, I want to really I want to focus on this interaction that Jesus has uh, with the, a man known as the rich young ruler. And I'm not going to go into the whole interaction. I just want to highlight this one piece um, at the beginning this morning in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. This is what we read. We read this as he that being Jesus was setting out on a journey. A man ran up to ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds to him and says, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one is good except God. No one is good except God. In this quick interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler, Jesus hits on this attribute that we're going to talk about the morning, the goodness of God. Now, I know that there are objections to God's goodness, and that's not really what we're going to be focusing on this morning. If you want to have a conversation about that later, we can. But people do bring up, if God is good, then why do bad things happen and all that stuff? And we've defined that and talked about that earlier. But the question is, is like, how do we define the goodness of God? What does it mean that God is good? And I think a good definition for the goodness of God is this. God is the final standard of good, and all that God does is worthy of approval. So God is the final standard of good and all that he does is worthy of approval. So if we define the goodness of God this way to those who question God's goodness, they need to know that he is the standard by which all goodness is laid the foundation of goodness, that he is the source of all goodness. And here's what I mean. The only way that people who object to God's goodness can really object to God's goodness is that they know that there is goodness because God is good. Right. And so the only way that they can object to it is that I know that that won't be an acceptable answer for a lot of people who object to God's goodness. But just know that God is good in all that he does. So this morning, I want to examine different aspects of God's goodness. And I want us to take some time to delve into and stand in awe of the wonder of the goodness of God. But before we do that, let's let's go to the Lord with a prayer to illuminate our minds. And uh, we'll get started. Father God, thank you for your goodness, Lord. And though we know that there are those people who reject the idea of your goodness, Lord, we know from your word that you are good, you are perfect, you are holy. And though things in this world may stink, though things in this world may be going awry, Lord, we know that regardless, you are still good. 
and that for those who love you and are called according to your purposes, that you are working all things out for our good. And so, Lord, help us to trust that reality. Help us to live in that reality, knowing that, that you are good in all that you do. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, kind of like we started off last week, if you were here with us last week, I want to examine, last week we examined God's wisdom in creation. This morning, I want to look at God's goodness in creation. And we see this in the very opening pages of Scripture, that God's creation is good. Over and over again, Moses in Genesis chapter 1 um, tells us that, God looks at the things that he created and he says that they are good, right? God sees the light and he says it is good. He saw the land and it was good. He saw the sun and the moon and the stars and they were good. He sees the fish of the sea and they are good. The land animals are good in it. He sees the the humanity that he has made and it is good. And it's all ends up in chapter one, verse 31 of Genesis with this. God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. And then evening and morning came the sixth day. Everything that God made was good. And the reason that it is good is because it overflows from God's goodness. A good God creates good things. Now we have to be careful here because one of the arguments that people use to justify their sin is that, oh, well, God made me this way. And if God makes good things and he made me this way, he created me this way, then it is how God wants me to be. Now, the problem with that and that flow of argument is that it doesn't take into account the sinfulness of the human heart, right? It doesn't take into account that the, that sin distorts God's goodness. Sin always takes what God created as good and twists it and manipulates it so that it is no longer good. This is not to say that sin is more powerful than God, but because of the sinful state of the world and the hearts of man, we need to make sure that what we call good isn't in fact evil in the eyes of the Lord. So because God is the source and the fount of all good things, we must look to him for the definition of what good is. Our sinful desires are not good and they don't come from God. What God says is good is good, and what God says is evil is evil. And if the thought that we have or the desire that we have or the trait that runs against what God has declared as good, then it is always evil in his eyes. The good is from God, and the sin is a distortion of God's good thing for, his, for our own evil intentions. Now, you may be looking and saying, Josh, what are you talking about? Well, let's just take one of the primary examples that has pilfered and, and infiltrated our lives and our, um, our world, and this is the idea of sexuality, right? Sex is a good thing. It is a gift from God, but when we distort it and we make it for our own pleasure rather than for God's glory, whether that be um, outside of marriage or whether that be in uh, um, homosexual relationships, whatever it is, we have distorted it. And we've taken what God has declared as good, and we have made it evil and wicked, right? Or, or we can go with the example of alcohol. Alcohol is not a bad thing, but it can be used poorly, right? God never says don't drink. He just says don't get drunk. So these are aspects of what God has declared as good, and we have distorted them into something evil. And sometimes people want to go around and go, well, God made me this way, and that's okay, well, God says, no, it's not okay. That's not okay. You have taken a good thing and you've distorted it for your own sinful desires. 
So that so God creates good things, and humans are really good at distorting good things and making them evil things. We actually, all of us have a PhD in that, right? We have all mastered the, the reality that we can take good things and make them bad things. Okay, now moving forward. So God is good in creation, but I also wanted us to talk about God's goodness to creation. So now that that clarification is done, I want to move to God's goodness to creation. And if we're honest, we take a lot of his goodness to creation for granted. Think about it real quick. What are some good things about creation? Well, let's start off with beauty. This is probably the most basic one. So just Friday morning, as the kids were leaving, I was sitting in my rocking chair, and Eden had opened the door, and Eden was astounded by the beauty of the sunrise, the pinks and the purples, and she goes, wow, it's so pretty outside. And that is a, a beautiful thing, right? Those pinks and those purples and the, the light shining through the clouds look like an amazing oil painting. Some people even talk about the sky being God's canvas at sunrise and sunset. The beauty arises from those daily events, and they show us God's goodness in beauty. He wants us to see beauty. He wants us to see beauty in the heavens, but not just the beauty in the skies. He wants us to know about the beauty in the fields. Now, I'm not a big fan, but people love blue bonnets, and they think they're the most beautiful thing, right? Let's take our kids out on the side of the road and stop traffic and have people take pictures in these blue bonnets because, I mean, they're so beautiful, and, and they are pretty, right? But so, so you got the blue bonnets and the, the what are they called? The Indian paintbrushes, is that what they're called? And, and, and the lilies of the field. And these are all beautiful creations of God. And they're, they're good for us to look at and admire and see beauty. Because the reality is God didn't have to make things beautiful. Right? He didn't have to make a world where we could see a, a plethora and a prism of different colors. But because of his goodness, he did. He knew that the beauty of creation would draw us to his glory. Life would be dull and draining if we had lived in a black and white world where everything is just kind of shades of gray. But the creative, gracious, and goodness of the heart of the Lord made everything to where it would be beautiful. And because he is beautiful, he wanted us to see his beauty in the things of this world. And because he is beautiful, he has put that imprint on the heart of man. And so what we want to do is we want to make pretty things, not all of us, artists in the room want to make pretty things, right? Whether they be sculptures or paintings or pictures or, or quilts or whatever it is, they want to make beautiful things. Why? Because whether we believe it or not, art is beautiful and God created art so that we could see his beauty. This, this creation of God's goodness in creation stirs the heart of man that we would want to recreate beauty in paintings, sculptures, whatever. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately. You know, I used to be one and still can fall into this, cru or this, this rut where I'm really kind of indifferent to um, aesthetics or to the appreciation of beautiful things. I've just never been one who've been drawn to that. But here recently, I've really been thinking about the need for beauty in our lives. That we should appreciate beauty because God gave it to us to worship him and as a reflection of his goodness. Think about those grand cathedrals that took hundreds of years to build. And why were they built? Well, one of the reasons they were built was and designed is that they were to draw out a sense of awe and wonder in the hearts of man. A sense of beauty that points to the good creator. And as I've grown in my appreciation of beauty, I found that it has, it is not 
unnecessary. That just like God's other good gifts that he has given to us, we should appreciate it and ultimately have it point back to him. Beauty is a good gift from God. And we should appreciate and stand in awe that we can look out and we can see colors and we can see shapes and we can see faces and we can see flowers and we can see all these beautiful things that God has created rather than just walking by them. Take time to soak it up. Next in the goodness to creation, we see that God has been good to us in food, right? How often do you take a step back and simply enjoy how food tastes rather than just shoving it in your face? Right with three small kids around the house, it's easy just to kind of shove food in your face because you've got a lot of things that you got to get doing. But enjoying food is a good thing. God could have have made us to where we didn't have taste buds, or He make all food taste like some gray mush. But in His goodness, He made it to where we could taste food, where we can enjoy food. We can know the savory taste of a steak, the sweet and nutty complexity of a pecan pie the sourness of pickles. Y'all laughing because y'all know how much I love pickles. The complexity and the diversity of foods should be astounding to us. That We can take all these different spices and seasonings and we can make things delicious. That we can cook a piece of meat over an open flame and taste the char. Right? The beauty of God is in the taste of food. This is amazing. And in fact, if we do an an assessment of the scriptures, one of the things that is at the center of the scriptures is food, right? The eating of the fruit in the garden. That was an instance in which it was a bad thing to eat food. But then God made a promise to the Israelites that they would live in a land flowing with milk and honey. Jesus ate dinner, right, with his disciples. He had the last supper with his disciples, and he promised that at the end of time we would be having a wedding feast with the king. Food is central, an idea, a central idea to the scriptures. In his word, God shows us the importance of food, the importance of having a meal together, the importance of tasting his goodness in the food, so much so that Jesus' interactions with people often centered around food, ultimately pointing to the reality that food is a good, and beautiful gift from God. And here's what really pushes it over to, for me personally. The beauty and creation and the tasting of food weren't afterthoughts for God. They were, weren't just add-ons to, that, to his creation. In fact, they were intentional in his creation. It is because God is good that food and beauty exist. Psalm 34 verse 8 says this, Come taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Here's the thing. I want you to imagine the most delicious food that you have ever eaten. I was talking with Tommy this morning. I told him that one of the most delicious things I ever ate was, uh, it was a banana cupcake with a Nutella cream cheese frosting on top, right? It was absolutely amazing. So I want you to imagine the best thing that you've ever eaten. And I want you to imagine eating that thing in the most beautiful place that you can think of. Right? Whether it be a sunset over the Grand Canyon, or I don't know how it's faced, a sunrise or a sunset over the Grand Canyon, or maybe it's in your backyard listening to the crickets chirp, wherever the most beautiful place is for you in your mind, I want you to think about that in the most delicious meal. And I want you to know that God's goodness is way better than that. The goodness of God is what allows those things to exist. 
So they are not, they are a mere shadow and appetizer, if you will, to the goodness of God. The goodness of God exceeds any pleasure that we can experience on earth. Why? It's because God is the source and he is the supply of all good things. Now, when I talk about God's goodness in the beauty of creation and in the taste of food, you may think that is silly. But I, what I want you to know is that God's goodness is found in what we could, could consider to be the most mundane of things. And God's goodness should never be taken for granted. So if we see the goodness of God in a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, if we see the goodness of God in the flowers of the field, then we will be able to see the goodness of God everywhere. We will be more tuned in into the goodness of God in all aspects of his good creation if we look at it in the mundane. And when we truly see that God is the source and the supply of all that is good, we will worship him fully and truly for who he is. Now here's something else about God's goodness and creation. He doesn't limit it to a select few people or species. God is good to all his creation. God's goodness even extends to those in the animal kingdom. Matthew chapter 6, verse 26 says this, Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they are? Or in Job chapter 38, verse 41, he says, Who provides a raven's food when its young cry out to God and wonder for lack of food? God's goodness provides not just for humanity, but for his all his whole creation. He watches over all of his creation because he is good. He created ecosystems to be balanced. He created the worms that the birds would eat. He creates the grass that the gazelles eat. He creates the gazelles that the lions eat, right? There is balance and beauty in the creation of his goodness towards animals. Even animals cannot escape the goodness of God. But even more than that, God's goodness extends to those who don't believe in him. This is what we refer to as common grace. Common grace is grace from God that touches every aspect of creation. It is common for all. We all have air to breathe. We all get rain for our crops, seasons for planting and for harvesting. These are good gifts in God's creation. Psalm 145 verse 9 says this, The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. Think about the goodness of God and the fact that he holds out his goodness even to those who are his enemies. And we may not want to think about it this way, but those who reject God, those who don't believe in God are in fact his enemies. They are enemies of his and he still extends goodness, common goodness to them. What are some of the common things that God gives to unbelievers? Well, how about marriage? The fact that unbelievers can partake in this beautiful union is a common grace of God. What about children? Children are a gift, sometimes a frustrating gift, sometimes a gift you wish you could return, but they are a gift of God's goodness, right? And even non-believers get to partake in this beautiful gift that God has given us. Psalm 127 verse 3 says this, Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, offspring of reward. Many of us could definitely benefit from seeing our children as a gift from the Lord. So children are a gift from the Lord that he extends to all creation. Marriage is a gift of the Lord that he extends to all creation. God also allows unbelievers to have productive work. 
that they can have accomplishments and provide for their families, that they can be uh, benefits to others in society, that they can make discoveries and change the course of history, that they can have accomplishments at work and bring them a sort of satisfaction of a job well done. They can enjoy the beauty of music and sunsets and sunrises and food. They are afforded the opportunity to have great friendships and other relationships. God's common grace is available to all. And these good things, even though they are enjoyed by those who don't believe, still come from the source of all good things, that is, God himself. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, Jesus says this, For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends the rain on the unrighteous and righteous. Or in Acts chapter 14, verse 17, uh, Peter, or no, Paul here is talking to the um, those who don't believe in God in uh, one of those pagan countries. And although he did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. So even those who don't believe get to feel and benefit from the goodness of God. And the reason why is the goodness of God in creation is an overflow from his character. No one can escape the goodness of God. He pours it out on the whole earth, everyone and everything that dwells in it. Focusing on the goodness of God and his creation will shift our perspective. You see, as bad as we think the world is around us, if we actually just took some time and we reflected, we would see that there are, in fact, really good things in this world. It's easy to focus on the negative, but God tells us to focus on his goodness. What I find sad, though, is that many non-believers enjoy life more than those who claim to worship God. That's a sad reality, right? That God created this world to be enjoyed, and those who recognize him as Lord don't enjoy it as, those, as much as those who don't. When in fact, it should be the opposite. The opposite should be true, that us who worship the Lord, who know the Lord, who have been uh, transformed by the Lord, should be the happiest, and we should enjoy his creation all the more. We should know, taste, and see that the Lord is good in all things that he has given to us. We should be the most satisfied. We should be the most joyous, the most peaceful. And yet, we have a lot of fuddy-duds who claim to be worshipers of the Lord. We aren't overflowing goodness in the world around us. We're not focusing on the goodness of God. We're focusing on the, the problems of the world. And part of the problem is, is that sometimes we look at the good things that unbelievers enjoy and it becomes a stumbling block to us. Why, why, why do they prosper? Why do they make more money or have a bigger house or a better car than I do? The, the prospering of unbelievers can be difficult for us to comprehend. Why God? Why? Why them? We can even think that God is being better than to them than he is to us. And this isn't something new in our time and in our culture. This was a struggle even for the biblical authors. And we see this in, in Psalm 73. I'm just going to sample a few verses from it. But in Psalm 73, verses 2 through 5, here's what we read. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die. 
and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. This is a psalmist reflecting on the, the world that he sees around us, around him. And what does he see? He sees that the wicked are prospering, that they have well-fed bodies, that they have storehouses that are filled, that they are not in trouble like those who trust in the Lord. Honest check real quick. How many of you guys have ever felt that way? Asking God, why is that person prospering when I've committed my life to you and I'm struggling? It's an easy trap for us to fall into, right? We, we compare ourselves to others. But the problem is, is that comparison is a thief of joy because we are human. We can focus on the wrong things. We can look at the world around us, at those who are prospering, and it stirs up envy and jealousy in our hearts. We can even shake our fist at God and say, I deserve more than you have given me. But what we need is not more things. What we need is a better perspective. You see, this isn't the end of the author's writing in 73, of Psalm 73. He, he does regain perspective, and he gives us a remedy for this trap that we fall into in verse 16 and 17. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. And continuing in 22 through 26, I was stupid and I didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal towards you, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. The author of the psalm recognizes that God is the ultimate prize, that his goodness is where we find true hope, joy, and life. There will be a time when the prosperous of the earth will have to face the music. They'll have to pay the piper, so to speak. And when the wicked, those who are opposed to God, stand before him, they will have to, they will have to answer to him, and they will be found wanting. But for those of us who have submitted to the Lord, we know that our inheritance is the Lord. We may suffer on earth. We may, have, uh, we may not have the temporal blessings of the world, money, health, and other things, but we will have the Lord forever. This is our ultimate hope and reality. We cannot forget that though God is good to unbelievers, he is even better to those who believe. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7. Verse 7 through 11, he says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receive, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be open. Who among you, if his sons ask him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God is good to everybody, but he is good specifically to his children. Here Jesus is teaching a lesson to those who love God. God is going to provide what is needed for his children. Did you know that God delights in meeting the needs of his children? He loves to give good gifts to those who love him. That's what we see in these verses. That God gives good gifts, and he loves to give good gifts. If we ask, he will give. 
Now, again, I want us to be careful here. God isn't going to give you just whatever you ask for. We, can, we can't expect God to give us a better job, a bigger house, or a new car every time we ask him. God gives good gifts, and sometimes those good gifts aren't the things that we ask for. Sometimes we ask for gifts that aren't good. Those gifts from God that we ask for are sometimes selfish in nature. Or maybe they won't benefit us in our growth and our knowledge of the Lord. God always gives good gifts to his children that shape us into the image of Jesus. That is what is truly for our ultimate good. So God is going to give you gifts that make you look more like Jesus. So when God answers our prayers, he is answering them the best way that he knows how that has the best good for us. Maybe what you're asking for isn't going to bring God the greatest good for your life. So maybe God says, no, you don't get that. You can't have that. We do this with our own children too, right? No, you can't have ice cream for breakfast. That's not what we do, right? Sometimes saying no is the best thing God can do. It's going to bring about the best good. And in those circumstances, we need to trust him. Knowing that every good gift comes from God. That's what James says, right? In James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So if there is any goodness in your life, and believe me, there is, it is a gift from God. So don't be afraid to ask for God for good gifts from God, because he wants to be generous to his children. But also come prepared that he may say no, and that that no is a good thing that the no is a good gift from God. Now I want to address something really quick, just so there's no confusion. Not everyone is a child of God. Not all people are his children. The moniker child of God is reserved for those who have placed their trust in Jesus. And in that belief of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus we have been granted the right to become sons and daughters of God. So not everyone is a child of God. They are definitely God's creation, and they reap reap the benefits of living in the goodness that he extends towards creation, but they don't get to experience the goodness that he extends to his children. Those who have been adopted into the family of God because of the blood of Jesus are his children. So we need to make sure that we know the distinction between what it means to be a child of God and what it means to be a creation of God made in his image. Those things are not the same thing. So what other aspects is God good to his children? He is good in his plans for us. Even when it feels like our world is crumbling around us, God is working things out for our good. Trials are meant to conform us into the image of Jesus. I know that I beat this drum constantly, but it's something that we must remember. God will redeem every situation and trial that his children encounter. And in that redemption, what he is doing is primarily making us look more like Jesus. That's what Romans eight twenty eight and 29 says. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of God, of, of a son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's the goodness of God, that he is forever faithful to his purposes and to our good, and that 
our ultimate good is that we look more like Jesus, that we are conformed into the image of the son. This is the goodness of God's providence and oversight in our lives. We can trust that he is not out of control, that he doesn't leave us or forsake us, that he doesn't, he isn't dumbfounded or shocked by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Rather that in his goodness, he is going to make all things new and he's going to work together all things for our good and ultimately for his glory. God is also patient towards believers. The fact that he doesn't cut us off from his, our promised inheritance when we blatantly sin against him is good that he endures. Or as the scripture says, he has long suffering. That is a good thing. Meaning that he doesn't throw in the towel when we continually sin in his face. That is the goodness of God. God continues to extend forgiveness to us that he pardons and washes away our sins because our lives are found in Christ. He continually and graciously forgives us. God's goodness towards his children is never ending. We should never doubt God's goodness. In fact, getting us to doubt God's goodness is one of the devil's greatest ploys. If he can get us to think that he is, that God isn't good, then he can entice us into sin. That's exactly what he did in the garden, right? And, And it's been his primary play since the beginning when he whispers, in our ear that there is something better for us out there that God doesn't have our best interest at heart. Then that sin starts to, to give birth inside us. And we have been deceived by the Lord. If we believe that we have to hold fast to the truth that God's goodness is extended to us, that he always has our good in mind because he is the good one. So we have to stand on the truth that God is good all the time that his mercy, grace, and love is better than we can ever imagine. And one of the ways that we stand on the truth of God's goodness is that we go out and imitate his goodness to the world around us. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those belonging to the household of faith. You see, as followers of Jesus, our response to God's goodness should be that we do good in the world around us, that we are good to others, that we make this world around us a little bit better, that anywhere that we go is better because we have been there. If you belong to him, then you are tapped into the source and the fount of everything that is good. And when we do good, we are ultimately doing good things for God. This is a calling of every follower of Jesus. Following Jesus isn't a passive exercise. Rather, it is an active life. And one one of the ways that we are active is doing good to the world around us because we have received good from the Father. Imitate God's good around you. Do the good things in the world. And so what are some practical ways that we can do that? We can practice patience at home, at work, everywhere else. Patience is something that most people can improve upon. Call me before you come to the house. I'll make sure that I have my patience on, right? If we remember the patience that that the Lord extends to us, we should practice that same type of patience on others. We can extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us. Listen, we're all going to face people that have done something to us. They have harmed us in some way. And one of the greatest gifts that we can do, one of the greatest goods that we can do is offer forgiveness because we have been forgiven. Recognize how much God has forgiven you and continues to forgive you and extend that type of forgiveness to others. 
Another good thing that you can do is you can serve others. You can be a light in the world around you, stepping out of selfishness and pride and humbling yourself to serve others, to serve the church, to serve your family, to serve your community, knowing that serving is an imitation of the Lord. Another way you can go out and be responsive to God's goodness is through generosity. A generosity is another way to imitate God's goodness that he didn't withhold his own son from us, that he gave generously so that we could have redemption and remembering that nothing that we have belongs to us, that it all ultimately belongs to God. And we are simply stewards of his gifts being generous with what he has given to us. And finally, I want you to know that one of the ways, and this is not an extensive list by any means, but one of the ways that you can do good things in the world is to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Tell others about Jesus. The best good that you can do is share the good news. Tell them about who Jesus was, what he did, how they can experience the goodness of God in their life how they can know the king of the universe, how they can experience the forgiveness of their sin, how they can experience restoration. This is an amazing work that you can do at any time, anywhere. That's what Jesus did. He showed up proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And as imitators of him, we should do the same thing. Now I do want us to understand that none of those good works are going to save you. None of those good deeds will make you right with God. The good deeds are done as an overflow of the heart, as a byproduct of our love for God. And in a response to his goodness, we do good things. They are the outworking of experiencing God's goodness. If you are a child of God, then you are called out to go out and do good works. This is what Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says that for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he, God prepared for us ahead of time. God's plan for us is that we would serve the ultimate good, which is his glory, that we would do the greatest things that show people how good and majestic he is. God's glory is always the ultimate good. And he has created us to do those good works, to demonstrate his glory to the world around us, around us. And in fact, he has invited us to walk alongside him in this mission to seek and save the lost. It's something that we should be grateful for the goodness of God that we get to show to the world and that we should be excited about. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. That's what Paul says in first Corinthians 15. We are called to do good works and to show God's goodness to the world around us. Let us not neglect this calling. Let us make the goodness of God known to the world around us making every effort to show others how beautiful, majestic, and glorious God is. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to worship you. And I pray, Lord, that as we close in this song, that we would be reminded of how good and glorious, great and majestic you are. That it is your goodness that makes life worth living. That we get to experience that goodness at all times and in all places, Lord. Thank you for the, the greatest good, which is the fact that we have redemption through the blood of Jesus, that we can come to you, that we can worship you in spirit and truth. But we're grateful for who you are. We're grateful for what you've done. We're grateful that you have called us sons and daughters. Help us to live a life of gratitude, demonstrated by the fact that we are doing 
good things in the world around us that glorify you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.